0: I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Bruce. Dr. Bruce, thanks for taking the time.
0: I am super excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: It looks like it's a sunny day out there in Los Angeles. What's on the agenda today? Have you gotten your sunlight this morning?
0: I do, well, every morning I get my 15 to 20 minutes of direct sunlight. I drink my, uh, my green drink full of trace minerals, every vegetable I could possibly need, and uh, do my supplement routine. And then later today, I, um, I'll probably run a 5K and then work with my trainer for an hour. Um, that's kind of my, uh, my thing on Thursdays is to be able to do that. But um, yeah, I've got, (laughs) it's amazing how much stuff I've got going on right
1: now. I love it. Uh, Yeah, good to be busy in those ways. What's the reason you picked a 5K? Do you always run that distance? Is it just work for you or is it kind of like an optimal amount to run?
0: So there are two reasons. One is um, I was talking with my urologist about it and uh, we were trying to find ways to increase my testosterone naturally. So I don't have low testosterone, but I'm, I'm within the normal range, but I'm on the lower side of the normal range and I could feel it in my energy. And so I was talking with him and he has me now doing, um, heavy resistance exercises and he wanted me to slow down on the really lengthy cardio. So 5k, I can do a 5k right now in under 25 minutes. So, for me, that works perfectly. So, it gives me just enough cardio. Uh, my dad had a heart condition, so I'm constantly concerned just from a cardiac perspective. Sure. So, I like to have about 25 minutes of cardio. And, and I don't jog, I run. So, you know, like I'm moving very quickly when I'm doing it. So, that part is good. And then the training stuff is all just hardcore resistance, uh, weightlifting, primarily big muscle groups and things like that.
1: Cool. Are you doing any uh, deadlifts, front squats, back squats? What's the...
0: All of the above. Um, yes. I, have a lo- I have low back pain, so I really have to be careful with my form. Right. Um, and, so, and I also the timing of my exercise during the day will allow me to perform better or worse depending upon what time of day I exercise. So it's based on my circadian rhythm. And in my book, The Power of When, I talk about perfect time for exercise or sex or sleep or eating or what have you. So I try to follow my own rules.
1: <laughs> uh, I love it. What, what an awful idea, right? That brings us to the idea of uh, chronotypes, which you just brought up that are in your book, The Power of When. So you have the bear, the lion, the wolf, the dolphin. How do you introduce chronotypes to people who say, what are they? What about the people that are super skeptical and say, this sounds like astrology? Is it going to apply to me? How do you present it?
0: Sure. Absolutely. So first of all, here's the good news is there's real science behind it, right? And so these are genetically predetermined lifestyles and schedules that go on in your body. So we all have a circadian rhythm, but everybody thinks that there's only one. There's actually almost 300 circadian rhythms going on in your body at any given time. Disease has a circadian rhythm, each organ system has one, each system has one, so digestive system, nervous system, all these different systems have different circadian rhythms. But a chronotype is a general idea of when your body starts its day, if you will right? And so we've all heard about this historically, early bird versus night owl, right? Those are chronotypes. My contribution to the literature was I added insomnia as a chronotype. So Mm -hmm. there've always been early birds and what they called hummingbirds for a while, which nobody ever remembers, and then night owls, which everybody hears about. But then I added to that the idea of an insomniac. I changed the characters, if you will, the avatars, Primarily because I'm not a bird, right? I'm a mammal, and I, wa- I wanted there to be mammals in this that could be identifiable. I also used mammals that actually have those circadian rhythms. So a lion actually is a very early riser. Their first kill is before dawn, whereas wolves are more nocturnal creatures. They hunt at night. So I wanted people, number one, to have an animal that they could identify with. Like, nobody wants to be a porcupine, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I had to choose animals that were acceptable to be, right. but also fell into those categories of having those actual circadian rhythms. That was not an easy task, but we we were able to get there. Um, When people say to me, well, I don't believe in chronotypes, you know, it's actually very easy conversation to have. So number one, chronotypes were discovered in the 70s. So this isn't some miraculous thing that I just made up. These things have been around for quite a while. In my book alone, where I only took the last five years of research, I have over 300 studies using these chronotypes. So I don't have any problem saying, you know, go to PubMed, type in the word chronotype, and we're done because they're real and they work. And also, I think there's some people who say, well, I don't believe that I'm the chronotype that you think, seem to think I am, whether I'm taking it through your quiz or, or something along those lines. Now, that's a fair criticism because there's only so much I can do with 30 questions on the internet, right? Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, but if I can get your blood work or I can get your saliva, I can tell you exactly what your freaking chronotype is. That's easy. You know, right. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I think that people are looking for instant personalization and it's a trap we have to avoid because until you start with a broader category, it's going to be really hard to triangulate or pinpoint and get down to your exact biology. So with chronotypes, this is something that's been going on since the seventies. What is the most recent literature or studies or maybe something you've discovered recently that has you excited about this again? I mean, I'm I'm sure you're always excited about it, but I didn't know if anything like really, really caught your interest lately.
0: Well, I think there's been at least two or three things that I think have been quite fascinating fairly recently. So uh, last year, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to circadian researchers. That's pretty Mm. freaking cool. Um, I mean, you know, the Nobel Prize in Medicine, like the single biggest honor in all of medicine was given to circadian researchers. So that falls right into my wheelhouse of yes. This is exactly the avenue we need to be thinking about, we need to be talking about, we need to be understanding. Because if we don't, we're really going to see some pretty big deficits long term. I think the other area that I thought was really interesting, I have a hobby. So most doctors and researchers, we kind of have these interest hobbies, right? So like I'm a specialist in sleep, but there are certain areas I just think are cool and I like to read about. Mine is cancer. And um I'm very interested in cancer and sleep. And what we discovered in the last two to three years is that cancer cells multiply faster the more sleep deprived you are. Let me repeat that. Cancer cells multiply faster the more sleep deprived you are. That, in and of itself, is like drop the mic. We're freaking done here, right? So we should all be looking at this. I mean, cancer, right? Like, this isn't about performance any longer. This is about the most devastating disease that's ever hit the human race, right?
1: it suggests a way to slow it or prevent it at the very least that uh, you can't can't really argue with, right? So like sleep medicine has to be a part of oncology and is it being quickly adopted as a preventative treatment? So here's
0: what's cool is now what we're starting to see is like at Sloan Kettering and like some of the major, like MD Anderson, like the major cancer research centers, they're actually now administering chemotherapy on a circadian cycle. And what they've discovered is they can use less chemo so l- less poison and get better results.
1: Which is what we want, right? Yeah. And I think right? there's that's some studies That's exactly that
0: what we want. Like we, show, that's exactly what we want to do.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think there's some new research too, or at least a couple studies that show intermittent fasting prior to chemo has been shown to have some effect too. So you start to stack these things on top of each other and it gets really exciting. So th- this is really cool too, because I think that so many people in the back of their mind, they're worried that- oh, I'm going to be predisposed to cancer or something like this, or uh, it's an inevitability and it's really not. How do you view people who have gone through the pain of having a family member battle, either Alzheimer's or cancer, which are you know basically the result, the extreme manifestation of sleep deprivation? How do you talk to those individuals who are just pessimistic about you know, maybe they fall into, into a trap and think that it's inevitable? What do you say to them?
0: Well, so I'm a firm believer that everybody has the ability to sleep and sleep well. And so what I do is that, you know, it depends on where they are in their path of being diagnosed. Right. And so, you know, when I get somebody who's diagnosed very recently with cancer, it's almost immediate insomnia because they're worried, they're concerned. And so we're dealing with that. Then once the reality of it sinks in and we understand what their treatment path is, then we look at things like how can we put their chemotherapy onto a circadian rhythm so that they have less discomfort because less chemo in your body means less puking, less nausea, less like all of the, all the stuff that's terrible about chemotherapy. So that's usually a welcome addition to their situation. Then there's also the reconstruction, the reconstructive surgery that oftentimes has to occur. There's a lot of anxiety before that. There's also a lot of pain during the recovery after that. So there's a lot of understanding sleep schedules and uh, in those cases sometimes a sleeping pill or a pharmaceutical may be required in some cases right after there's diagnosis there might be a pharmaceutical that needs to be required just because look if I told you that you had cancer you ain't gonna sleep right I mean it's just the human mind just goes you know goes, goes through all that and then towards the end of it when they're moving more into recovery from it. Then there are residual effects from chemotherapy, from surgeries that we have to deal with sometimes. And then just attitudinal shifts, you know, is like, how do I make sure I don't get back to that place? And, you know, what is part of my recovery? So we always try to make sleep and a good sleep practice is a part of their recovery. So it's, it's different as you go along the path with something, for example, like cancer or Alzheimer's or things like that. Cancer actually turns out to be a little bit easier to deal with sometimes than Alzheimer's or dementia because, you can see a stop sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. like you can see a regression or remission of the cancer, whereas you really don't see that very often in an Alzheimer's or a Parkinson's patient.
1: So for people who want to start taking this incredibly seriously now, I I know you're a performance coach, you work with elite performers and to help design, I guess, a custom sleep plan, right? And then make sure that's executed on and iterated and improved. On the intake sessions for those, where do you usually start or where do you find the places for the, the highest gains kind of?
0: Oh, yeah. So it's fascinating because almost everybody that comes to me comes to me for similar reasons, but we end up doing different things. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of people who are just like, I have lower energy. I'm not feeling great. You know, I don't know what's going on. Michael what what do i do that's kind of the general complaint that walks through the door and so during the initial assessment which is actually free i i work with everybody so they kind of get to know what this what the situation is so everybody can kind of come in for the first one we really do a fully detailed medical history evaluation the whole nine really trying to get into all of the person's habits surrounding sleep, but also their general health habits, their general medical history, also their mental health history plays a very large role in in what's going on with sleep. There is a very large mental side to sleep um, as well. Um, And then one of the things that I do with almost everybody these days is what I call sleep genetics. So this is kind of an interesting area. So think 23andMe, but for sleep. Mm -hmm. So um, what I'm doing is I have the ability to take your 23andMe or your Ancestry.com data and work with another group. And we run it through an algorithm of 74 different sleep markers. So we actually look at the SNPs or the single nucleotide polymorphisms, the, the, the differences wow. along the chain. Mm-hmm. And 74 different places, we know that those places do certain things to sleep. So once I get that information and I run that algorithm, it's literally like a personalized roadmap of you and what's going on with you. And then I know exactly where to go and what to do. So I'll learn your chronotype from that. I learned the amount of sleep that you need from that. I learned the general quality of your sleep. I'll learn if you have any proclivity for any sleep disorders like apnea, narcolepsy, restless legs, teeth grinding, those kind of things. And then I can put together a plan so that it'll have three different factors. One is immediately what do we need to do to help get you sleeping now? The second is is once we get you sleeping there, kind of what's your follow-through plan? And then the third one is kind of an emergency plan plan, right? So I got to take a 5am flight in two days. How do I do that type of thing? Or I'm flying to Singapore. How do I defeat my jet lag? I have a whole jet lag service that I provide for many of my uh, clients where they just tell me I'm flying 12 different places over the next two months. And I actually give them a sleep schedule and uh, activity schedule, what to do, when to do it, that kind of thing.
1: So one single day or a single night's variation can cause a host of unintended consequences. I'm sure if you just mess up your sleep a little bit. So depending
0: upon the variation, right? So if if you only, if if, let's say you cross two time zones, it'll take two days and your body's going to adjust. You cross 12 time zones. That's a different story.
1: And so how long does it take if you are crossing 12 time zones to maybe get back to a normal baseline if you assume the person's following your recommendations uh, to, to the letter?
0: Oh, wow. If somebody follows them to the letter, they'll have zero jet lag. Wow. Absolute zero. It's pretty amazing, actually. But if they don't, it'll take them almost 12 days. So it takes the average body approximately one day per time zone crossed to adjust. Just based on light cues and things like that, it takes about a day. So as an example, uh, I flew last summer from Los Angeles to Singapore. So 17-hour flight, 12 time zones away. And um, by doing these very specific recommendations, and and just to be clear, we use uh, caffeine, melatonin, light, and napping in very particular orders at very particular times in your schedule. It's a two-day-before-you-leave and the day-of-you-leave plan. So it's a three-day plan. But I walked off the plane and I was giving a live lecture in two, two hours later and I had zero jet lag.
1: What's the biggest resistance you get from either athletes or executives who start something like this, but then don't continue? Maybe uh, they, they basically like taper off because we, we're all prone to starting something, getting really excited about it. And where do you see people quitting or giving up on this?
0: It's interesting. It depends upon if they have a sleep disorder or not. So if they've got like formal insomnia or apnea or or narcolepsy, it, it usually they, they treat it and they continue to treat it. But when they've got what I call disordered sleep, so not a sleep disorder, but disordered sleep. So like I wake up and my sleep is like crap. We have to get them feeling better quickly in order for there to be a maintenance of this. And so I choose the techniques that I'm going to use with people very specifically that way I know that, hey, I'm going to be able to do this with this person. This will be helpful. They'll see a gain within one to two weeks. And then we've got them hooked and then we keep them moving. And some people say, you know what? We've tweaked my sleep enough. This I'm happy with it. I don't need to go to that far reaching goal that, you know, we might have had. I want to stop now. That's fine too. I try to give people maintenance plans in terms of, okay, if, if this is as far as you want to go, here's what you need to do, that kind of stuff. And um, people generally follow it. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. By the time you get to a performance coach that focuses in on sleep, you're ready to do what they tell you to do usually.
1: That's fascinating. So what type of gains or changes, are there any uh, maybe like anonymous stories you can share of someone who did this for a year and then after that year they were able to accomplish something brand new or whatever the case is? Oh,
0: I mean... Gosh, the stories are endless. I've had some patient, I, I had a former uh, GBI agent. So Georgia Bureau of Investigations, like the FBI, but local for Georgia. Mm-hmm. That's where I started my practice 20 years ago. And um, he uh, he had been kicked off of stakeouts. He was been stuck at a desk job. He was falling asleep during the day. mean, He was miserable. And he came in and um, to be really frank with you, um, he told me he was thinking about killing himself. Like he was like, Nothing in my life is going, my marriage sucks, my job sucks, like everything is terrible. I mean, honestly, in 30 seconds, I figured out he had apnea. I just had to look in his throat, look at his neck, and I was like, dude, this is fixable. So we did an emergency sleep study that night, got him on a CPAP machine that evening, and I saw him two days later. It was fascinating because when I watched, and he was not a small guy, right? So he was like, maybe 5'10", 5'11", maybe six foot He was a good 260 pounds. Like he was a big dude, right? And um, I walked in and his wife was there and she was not a small woman either. She was like 5'4", weighed about 200 pounds and she comes running over and she just engulfs me in this huge hug and she's crying and she was like, thank you for giving me my husband back. You know, like that's the kind of effect that I have. I've saved more marriages as a sleep doctor than I ever would have as a marital therapist literally just like helping people get back in the bed together, sleeping, reducing snoring, eliminating apnea, those kind of things. It was crazy. When she, when they left, she handed me some papers and I opened them up and they were divorce papers. She said she didn't need them anymore.
1: Wow. That's super, super cool. And, um, I think this brings us to an important point too, which is feel free to speculate wildly here or give some examples, but What is your opinion on what's going to happen with the future of psychology and psychiatry? Because I see these fields as all like dancing around. They they don't want to face the root causes in, in some sense where it's sleep, it's exercise, it's the basics. And until you start with those basics, what good is it to talk with somebody for to do talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy if you're not changing your underlying inputs? Like, Is this going to be something that these fields have to embrace to stay relevant? What's your opinion on it?
0: Well, it's a great, you know, that's an interesting question. And so here's what I would tell you is the more progressive psychologists become, the more they will start to take into the biology of what's really going on, right? And so i i walk the fence because I have a PhD in clinical psychology, but I'm also board certified in clinical sleep disorders. So I'm kind of like doing both, if mm. you will. And I find that's the most accurate way. I think with the introduction of functional medicine, I think a lot more people are starting to look at things like diet, exercise, and sleep and how they affect the overall human condition. I would argue, though, that if we're not starting to teach this kind of information in graduate schools where people are getting the PhDs and MSW programs and master's levels programs, if we don't have at least one class on how does exercise, diet, and sleep affect mental health, then- we're doing a huge disservice, number one, but number two, we're really, we're not furthering the field, right? And so the goal is to further the field with more knowledge. And I mean, the knowledge is irrefutable at this point. Like we know that exercise affects mood and health. We, we know it, like that's a fact. We know that sleep does. We know that nutrition does. So I think that if you're going to stay relevant, you got to have this kind of information, you got to include it in your practice.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. What's your idea or do you have any ideas around how do we get the curriculum changed or is that, is that like one of the causes that people should be focused on or is that an area where you think that it's not, gonna, it's not really possible to make quick change?
0: So I think there's two ways to go about doing it. I think if you're trying to get into the institutional system and trying to change things that are going on in graduate schools, that's a long road because here's the big problem. Nobody in those institutions know, know any of this stuff. So you'd have to get somebody like from the exercise physiology and nutrition department to start giving classes in the psychology department. So interdepartmental stuff, I have no idea how the politics on that works. That's going to take a while. I'm actually currently about to start working on a clinical certification program for health mm-hmm. coaches and for people out there because nobody's teaching anybody about sleep. Um, There's a a good bit of uh, education and certification that can be done around training, even around nutrition, but there's literally nothing being done about sleep. And so I feel compelled to create that. So it's March now. My goal is by January of next year, so giving myself about nine months to put this together, to put together a online course that people can take to become sleep certified, if you will, in order to be able to start disseminating some of this
1: information. I think that's a smart place to start because that's where people are going to have incentives around if they own their practice or something like that like they're going to put it into practice because of the the results. So, what else is exciting for you right now? So, I'm I'm really interested. We're based in the Bay Area in Palo Alto, but we've been checking out offices and studios in LA. We're thinking about expanding there. What are your thoughts on LA? Where's LA at right now? It, do you see like a a startup and kind of like a renaissance of business there? Or do you think LA is still pretty far behind Silicon Valley in the the startup sense?
0: That's an interesting question. On the health side of things, I think LA is pretty progressive. Yeah, we've got a lot of new clinics opening up. There's a cool place here just opened up about the last, I don't know, maybe year, year and a half called Next Health. Dave Asprey just put in um, bulletproof or upgrade labs. So basically all of his crazy machines that he's got in his garage, he's now putting in different places. You know, We're starting to see some, I think LA's got some good health trends for mm-hmm. sure. From a tech, tech standpoint, we're never going to be the same way Silicon Valley is. I live at the beach. So to be honest with you, I don't really live in LA. I live three miles south of LAX airport in Manhattan Beach. And while I can drive to LA in 25 or 30 minutes, I choose not to <laughs> on a fairly regular you don't, basis.
1: You don't like sitting in traffic? So and you're waiting for uh, Elon to do his magic or is that is that what's going to bring you back to the city or what?
0: Well, you know, I mean, I love Tesla. Uh, I think uh, Elon's done some fascinating things. He has a huge sleep problem, by the way. Um, well documented. Um, I don't know if you know, but he was, uh, you know, he t- he, when he had his breakdown talking to the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, within days, articles were coming about out about his ambient use and his sleep deprivation and things like that. LA is a cool place, you know. I, I, Here's what I can tell you: is I've been here for three years. I lived in Scottsdale for ten. I lived in Georgia for thirty five, and um, I love it here. I mean, the weather is amazing. I've spent more time outside in three years than I have in the last thirty for sure. And um, I'm I'm finding myself to be more fit here. Like everybody here is fit. Like you just don't see a lot of like morbidly yeah. obese people. Like I'm from Georgia, right? So there's morbidly obese people everywhere there. I'm not saying that yep. Georgia is a bad place, blah, blah, blah. I'm just no, saying. No, like, I'm,
1: I completely agree. So I'm I'm from Maryland. My wife and I are from there. We just went to LA last weekend to do a, like a scouting trip. And uh, we noticed the same thing that there's, there are a lot of healthy folks in Silicon Valley, but there are a lot of people who are uh, at a pretty high level of fitness in LA, like a ton. So yeah. and
0: and And what's cool about it is, is like, you're right on, like I'm right on the water. So it's like, I can run out at the beach every single day if that's what I want to do. I can take my dogs out every day and there's always stuff going on and there's new types of gyms. Like I'm in a CrossFit gym. I'm one of the oldest guys there, but I'm in a CrossFit gym. And here's the thing, everybody there is so nice, right? They're not like, Oh, old guy here. You know, we got to deal with him. Like even the other members are like, here, let me show you how to do this so you avoid injury. Like it's really helpful here. Like everybody's got the attitude of if you want to get fit, We will help you do that. Nobody's cramming it down anybody's throat. But if you raise your hand and say, hey, I'm interested, you're gonna learn a lot.
1: What do you think about communities and the importance of building, you know, an extended family, if you will, of friends and allies and business partners? It sounds like it's way easier to do that in a vibrant place like LA. Do you think it's um
0: well I've got two thoughts on that. So if you've ever looked at any of the blue zone research. Yes. Um, it's very consistent with community being incredibly important. And I live in a area that's literally almost a blue zone.
1: Um, just correct me if I'm wrong. So blue zones are the areas where people have a propensity to live to hundred, like on average or so the actual spatial areas. So you said LA not quite there yet, but pretty close.
0: Yeah, well, there's some areas of LA that have actually been, you know, kind of earmarked, if you will, as getting start starting to get there. So I, th- I feel community is incredibly important aspect to everything that we do. That's why I like to do things like podcasts and have interaction with other people that are in all other parts of the world to share ideas and things like that. So I, I believe that community is important. I will say, though, that LA can be kind of clicky. Um, right. And so you have to kind of, find your group of friends, but it's pretty easy if you're doing a particular activity. The other thing that's really kind of unfortunate about LA is the traffic is so bad that if you, like, as an example, if my wife and I meet somebody, one of the first questions we ask is like, where do you live? <laughs> if, if they live more than 15 miles, away, like, we'll never see them, you yeah. know, like it's almost impossible to meet up with people if, unless they are physically physically, within a five to 10 mile radius. Otherwise it it could, like we have cousins who live, it takes us an hour and 15 minutes to see our cousins and they're only 25 miles away.
1: That's a bummer. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, trade-offs for everything, right? So what do you think about in terms of the media landscape. So I didn't think we were going to go in that direction, but you've been on a whole bunch of different shows. You've been on Dr. Oz, you're a repeat guest and an advisor. What does the future of media look like for you from a, from a health standpoint? Do you see any, you know, maybe more healthy ideas? Do you see them getting into entertainment? What's the future of media look like?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a, so first of all, I'm glad you asked the question. I think it's fascinating. So here's what I can tell you is last year I did 240 interviews in a year. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that's podcast, that's digital, that's radio, television, you name it. Like that's everything combined. And, and here's what I can tell you is that number continues to increase every year. I mean, the year before, I think I was at 200. So like when you, when you start to look at it, the media is interested in sleep. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is there's always a new research study that's coming out, uh, which is great because sleep is still such a young field. Literally every month we learn something that's groundbreaking. You know, this month it was the confirmation that narcolepsy is actually an autoimmune disorder. Hmm. Like that's pretty huge. You know, now Now we have a that's whole it. interesting new path that we want to start learning more about. Like nobody would ever guess something like that. We also now know uh, there's some data leaking out now that's been really interesting looking at cannabis and sleep, right? So what is that? Because, I mean, we live in California, so that's something I have to learn and understand because, let's be honest, I smoke cannabis. And so if you're going to do that the correct way, to help your sleep, which by the way, the number two reason why people smoke cannabis seems to jockey between sleep and pain for the number two spot. Number one is just to get high, you know, chill or whatever. So, you know, starting to look at some of those things becomes very, very interesting. And the media is constantly asking me questions. I've been very fortunate. I have great media relationships. I was on the Today Show, uh, you know, this past month, twice during Sleep Awareness Week. They are very big fans of learning more about sleep. But I also feel like we have to have fun with it. You know, like when I do segments on Oz or today or home and family or wherever we try to make it a uh, fun, like, it's not just, let's talk about narcolepsy and the genetic aspects of that. Nobody cares, right? right. Unless you're an academician or unless you have narcolepsy. So, What's what's interesting is trying to get them trying to have a fun segment that's educational that can that can get an actionable result for the individual who's watching or consuming the media is really what we what we go for. And um, the truth of the matter is, is that lots of places are pretty good at it Um, and we come up with a lot of fun segments. I mean, at this point, I think I've been on national television well over 100 times and I've never had the same segment done twice. So there's just lots to do. And I think that's, I think that's good for the media. And to be really honest with you, I've never met anybody who's in media who sleeps well, never.
1: That's pretty interesting. So is it just the, is it something simple like blue light or is it something where it's just too many inputs and the, the average person in media just can't handle that or process it? Or what are, what's your thought there?
0: It, it, in the media world in particular, I do a lot. I, I would say 80 to 90% of my work is done with morning shows And so all those people have to get in at three o'clock in the morning. So they're Uh, all exhausted. So their circadian rhythms are screwed. I mean, literally, as soon as my segment is done, everybody, including the crew, including the hosts, they like literally circle me and they're like, okay, we can't sleep or we feel like crap. What what can we do? And I, I end up like a lot of times I'll end up doing a lunch and learn session for the crew you know, and for the host, like after the segment is over and then and the TV is turned off, if you will, then I sit there and I educate all of them as well.
1: That's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that insight. So as, you know, somebody that's, we're building a media company, the team's growing fast and that's uh, good to know because, yeah, getting your circadian rit- rhythms right seems to be just about everything. So what are you, if, are you reading a lot? Are you watching Netflix? I know you're in LA. Are there any TV series or books that are on your radar or that you're following closely now?
0: You know, I'm not a massive TV person, so I don't watch a tremendous amount of TV these days. Um, You know, I mean, I have my shows, right, that, you know, you just want to zone out and watch. But um, I've been watching a lot of documentaries lately because, of course, I'm on the airplane a lot. And um, I really have gotten into biographies and life stories. I watched one on uh, Gilda Radner the other day that was just amazing. What an incredible incredible person she was. I I like those kind of things. I like, I like learning how exceptional people do exceptional things Um, because a lot of times they're not as exceptional as you might imagine the people themselves. They just have a passion or a dedication to something and they just go and go and go. And then they learn something really cool and they share it with the world. So I, I think that part is, is pretty fascinating. So I just like to see how people who do stuff really well, what's their, what's their methodology? What's their discipline?
1: Same. I think biographies are so interesting. So quick tangent, one of our podcasts is called The Story, and we got Best of 2018 by Apple on it, just like Mission Daily. And it's, uh, it tells the unknown backstories of people who changed the world. And the second you go past you know, an inch deep into somebody's biography, I think what you find are all these different entry points that are accessible to almost everyone who's listening, where you know, like Elon, let's use that classic example. You know, He comes to the US and teaches himself to live on $2 a day. To remove his fear of poverty, like this is something that anyone could do and anyone could start practicing it today to remove their fear of poverty. But they're just not interested in it because most of the media spends all the time sensationalizing like the end results of being a billionaire. Which it, you can study that until you're blue in the face, but if you don't understand how the person got there, it's it's not going to make sense. So, what are some of your favorite biographies? Like what what biographies have personally inspired you? You mentioned Gilda Radner, but outside of that, what else?
0: So I can tell you one of my favorite biographies, which is going to sound bizarre. Well, there's a couple of them. So of course, the, there's one uh, by Bill Dement, who's the father of sleep medicine called The Promise of Sleep. That's a classic, you know, I mean, being in the field, sleep field, that's certainly one that I, I, I was fascinated by. Oddly enough, Andre Agassi, his biography, it was just called Open, was spectacular. I so thoroughly enjoyed that it was just fascinating to me to kind of see his dedication in his life and understand, like he has mass, all kinds of physical, like spinal problems, back problems, all of that. And, and then he was losing his hair and that was a big deal for him. And it's kind of represented who he was and his manliness, like all of these things. And it's, uh, it's quite fascinating to see what he's done in Las Vegas with uh, the school systems there and things like that. So it's been, it's been pretty fascinating to see him. I liked that biography. And then uh, aside from the biographies, one of my uh, most recent interesting books was uh, Dave Asprey, and it's called Game Changers. And he, goes, he interviews all the different people that he has worked with over the years in his podcast and sort of what were the, was the one thing that he learned from them that changed his life. And so I thought that was Fascinating able to do that kind of stuff.
1: Awesome. And uh, Dr. Bruce, thanks for, thanks for being generous with your time here. Is there anything that you would leave our listeners with, any uh, call to action, final thought, or thing that you just can't get out of your head that you want to share?
0: Well, I think there's a couple. Number one is if you don't know what your chronotype is, come check out my chronotype quiz. You'll learn a ton about it. You'll learn the, you know, when is the best time for you to do certain things during the day. If you have an opportunity to pick up a book but most importantly, I just did uh, and was just published a TED Talk on chronotypes that I did. So I'll get you the link. We'll have the link in the show notes for people. Um, awesome. Or if you just go to TED and you type in Sleep Doctor or Michael Bruce it'll or chronotypes, it'll come up and you'll learn the best time to have sex. I guarantee it.
1: <laughs> awesome. I'm already there. You can hear the uh, keystrokes. All right. See everybody next time.